0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to yet another edition of Bagoon's Barrage, the State of New England podcast. With me, your host, as always, Jake Donnelly, a.k.a. Bagoon. Well, of course, we are still mourning the loss of the Boston Bruins and the fact that their 2016-2017 season is now over. But there are some good things to look at in the state of New England and, in particular, the city of Boston. Of course, there is one team that is still in the playoffs right now, that being the Boston Celtics, who are now one game up. On the Washington Wizards after one game, a game in which they started down 16 to nothing. The Wizards scored the first 16 points of that game, but the Celtics came back to win it 123 to 111. We'll talk a little bit about that during this podcast. We'll talk a little bit as well about just how the New England Patriots, who had the fewest picks they've ever had under head coach and GM Bill Belichick, still came away as one of the best teams. In the NFL, when you look at the draft, it's because they did a lot of work before the draft and then they put in some overtime after the draft was over. So we'll hit the Celtics, we'll hit the Patriots, but right now the main story, at least that I want to talk about and our topic of the day is the Boston Red Sox. So when we look at the Boston Red Sox, really the story of this season, it has not been the pitching. Far from it, the pitching has been very fun to watch. Chris Sale, of course, is the closest thing to Pedro Martinez that Red Sox fans have seen in about a decade and a half. And Eduardo Rodriguez, he's been a pleasant surprise. Of course, he kind of has three pitches. He's really getting it done with just a very lively fastball and an A-plus changeup. Uh, that slider he throws in from time to time, but really Rodriguez is a guy that has two, two-and-a-half pitches depending on how good he feels during any particular start. So Sale's good. Rodriguez is good. Pomerantz, say hey, he's been Pomerantz. Not the guy who was an all-star with the San Diego Padres. But, you know, he's been uh, serviceable. If he is your number five starter, you could toss him out. He'll get five, six innings, kind of do a little bit of a Wakefield, although Wakefield was really six innings at least every single game and three to five runs every single game. And when the Red Sox were skidding, you could throw Wakefield out there and he'd give you a gem, like eight innings and one unearned run. That's kind of what Wakefield was for so long for the Red Sox, but the real problem is not the pitching. It is, in fact, the offense. Yes, the Red Sox are two games above 500 at 13 and 11. They just took two out of three from the Chicago Cubs, the team that everybody wants to beat in Major League Baseball. When he win the World Series the previous year, yep, yeah, that is literally the team to beat, still one through nine, the most devastating lineup in all of baseball, and they still have a just terrific rotation. Hendricks pitched last night for the Cubs, and a lot of those two-seamers were catching a ton of the plate in a manner that you just did not see all of last year, and yet the Red Sox really couldn't get to him. Hanley Ramirez, he is starting to hit well for the offense, but that's kind of it. I mean, if you're looking for guys to bop the ball out of the yard... You got a couple from Hanley Ramirez, you got a couple more from Andrew Benintendi, but beyond that, it's been mostly singles for the Red Sox. Look at this series. Uh, They take two out of three from the Cubs, but they do it mostly with singles. The 5-4 win against the Cubs on Friday night, right? You look at the box score in that one, a game in which the Red Sox scored in just one inning, and we'll talk a little bit more about that phenomenon in just a moment, but Two doubles in the game for the Red Sox, both in the five-run first inning. The home run by Benintendi, that in the first inning. The doubles, by the way, were for Betts and Moreland, because Moreland, apparently the only thing he can do is collect a couple of doubles. And the Red Sox come up with four extra base hits in their 7-4 loss against the Cubs on Saturday. A double by Hernandez, a triple by Bogarts, another home run by Ramirez, and another home run by Benintendi, and then on Sunday night in a 6-2 victory for the Red Sox, a game in which they scored in just two innings. How many extra base hits? Just one. If you want to look at how the Red Sox are getting it done, it's been with almost exclusively singles. In terms of team hitting through the Red Sox, first 24 games, they're 13-11, and remember, the Red Sox are third in Major League Baseball with a 270 batting average. The Houston Astros, two points ahead of them. The Washington Nationals, holy good God, 25 points up on the Red Sox. That's right, the Nationals are almost hitting 300 as a team. They sit at 295. And the Red Sox, they're getting on base as well. When you look at the on base percentage, the Red Sox are currently fifth in Major League Baseball with a 334. On-base percentage, Washington again dominating the league. They are first in the league with a 369 OBP, and the Yankees are actually nine points ahead of Houston for second. The Yankees are at 349 in on-base percentage. So you take a look at the first couple of lines of the slash line. The Red Sox third in batting average with that 270 clip, fifth in on-base percentage with a 3. 34, but for anybody that has been watching the Red Sox this season, the problem is quite obvious. Anecdotally, you think that all the Red Sox are doing lately is hitting singles and then waiting around for somebody else to do something. Well, guess what? The Boston Red Sox, third in average, fifth in on-base percentage when it comes to slugging percentage. The Red Sox are 24th. In Major League Baseball, their slugging percentage is a mere 381, one point ahead of the Pittsburgh Pirates, 425th. Whereas the Washington Nationals, yes, they were helped out by putting up 23 runs against the Noah Syndergaard-less Mets because Syndergaard left after one inning with what appears to be a lat strain. Not a lat. He's out with a lat strain. That's the injury. Al Michaels, I am not. If somebody is out with an injury, it is a lat injury, not a lat. We all have lats. Most of us, I believe, have a couple on their body. But the Washington Nationals, a 5-10 slugging percentage, just dominating. The rest of Major League Baseball, 39 points ahead of the Milwaukee Brewers, who get help from Eric Thames and all of his home runs. The Red Sox, as a team, they have 15 home runs As a team, Aaron Judge had 11. The rookie for the Yankees had 11 home runs by himself in the month of April. Thames had 12. Zimmerman, I believe he ended the month with 13 home runs. I have to check on that one. But you can see that the Red Sox, in terms of their home runs, yeah, they're not getting it done. Those 15 home runs for the Boston Red Sox, a team that is almost always... In the top of Major League Baseball in terms of scoring runs and hitting home runs, they are dead last in long balls. They have 15 home runs as a team. The next lowest is San Francisco, and then after that, you have to go to 20 to get to the Minnesota Twins and the Pittsburgh Pirates. So you see, the Red Sox are getting hits. They are getting on base, but right now the team has essentially turned into a bunch of Punch and Judy hitters. So what does that mean? The Red Sox, they're not scoring runs. They only have 93 runs on the season. And how they are scoring those runs, it's really, really odd. Okay, so uh, after the first game of this series, I had the stats. I have since updated it. I wrote about the one-and-done Red Sox offense on Saturday. Well, now it's Monday, and I've updated the statistics on it. The Red Sox have now scored in two or fewer innings a game in 16 of their 24 games. They have scored in one inning or fewer in 11 of 24. Two days ago, that number was 11 out of 22. So two days ago, they have scored in just one inning per game in half of their games, two more games. It is now 11 out of 24. But this Red Sox team, has scored in one inning, and that's it, in 8 of 24. So in a third of their games that they have played, that's not including shutouts. That's how you get to that number 11. But in a third of the Red Sox games, they have scored in one inning. In 11 of their 24, a little bit less than half, obviously, they have scored in one inning or fewer. In other words, they have had eight games this season where they have scored in one inning, and that's it. They have had three shutouts this season. So in 11 out of 24 games that the Red Sox have played this season, they have scored in one or fewer innings. So not only are the Red Sox not coming up with extra base hits, when they are getting hits, it is seemingly always in the same inning. And yet, they are two games above 500. It's one of the craziest things I have ever seen. And how are the Red Sox getting it done? Well, the bullpen has been great. Kimbrel, yes, he did blow a game uh, against the Toronto Blue Jays, the one where Sale went eight innings. Kimbrell had the one-run lead, a one nothing lead, gave up the home run. But the Red Sox then scored three runs in the top of the 10th inning to take a 4-1 lead. Kimbrel would pitch the bottom of the 10th inning and strike out the side. He actually picked up five out of his six outs by way of the strikeout in that game. And that's been really a microcosm for how the Red Sox have played this season. The Red Sox are compiling all of their runs in one inning. And most of the time, that is a late inning explosion for the Red Sox. The Red Sox I mentioned earlier in this rant have scored just 93 runs. I believe, actually, no, I did not mention it, but the Red Sox have scored 93 runs, which is 25th in Major League Baseball. The lowest output is the Kansas City Royals, who have just been putrid. They have scored 63 runs. To tell you just how bad that is, the San Francisco Giants, who are 29th in Major League Baseball. In other words, second to last, they have scored 80 seven runs on the year. So at least the Red Sox aren't the Kansas City Royals who have forgotten that you have to actually play offense and score runs in order to win baseball games. But the Red Sox, they're two games above 500 at 13 and 11. They have scored 93 runs on the season. 41 of those 93 runs have come in the seventh inning of games or later. So this Red Sox offense, and it really started at the beginning of the season. The Red Sox actually split their first four games. The first one was a 5-3 victory against the Pittsburgh Pirates. And that 5-3 victory, all five of the runs they scored were in the fifth inning. So again, that was just one inning of runs for the Red Sox in that game. Then he moved to the next game, the Chris Sale start, where Sale announced his presence with authority to Red Sox Nation. A 3-0 victory for the Red Sox in 12 innings, clearly all of the runs for the Red Sox in that game came in the 12th inning—a three-run walk-off shot by Sandy Leone, who sadly has kind of come back to earth offensively. So there, the first two games: five runs in one inning, three runs in one inning. Then the next game, a 6-5 loss, where they were down five to one—or make that, excuse me—they were down—they um, were down four to nothing, and they scored five runs. And in the eighth inning, it ended up losing that game 6-5 because the bullpen could not hold on to the lead. Then the game after that, a 4-1 loss for the Red Sox. And clearly, with the 4-1 defeat, they only scored one. They only scored in one inning. So in their first four games of the season, the Red Sox scored in just one inning of play. And that is something that they have done a ton of. I mentioned it a couple of times. They've done it actually in 11 of the 24 games that they have played this season. Two or fewer innings of scoring in 16 of 24 games. And these runs, they're coming late. So the Red Sox have been an extremely, extremely boring team through the first half of games. They don't score. In fact, the Red Sox, 52 of their 93 runs have come in innings one, two, three, four, five, and six. In other words, barely more than half of their 93 runs have come in more than two thirds of the game. That should not be, but once the game gets to the clutch times, once they get to the seventh inning, the Red Sox offense all of a sudden opens up. I think it's two things. One, they're not really getting to the bullpen as early as you would expect. And two, Maybe this team is kind of like the Celtics in that when the going gets tough, they really get going. So we'll see if the Red Sox can kind of start to turn things around. I think we saw it against the Cubs this past week in a couple of home runs, as I mentioned, for Hanley Ramirez, a few more for Andrew Benintendi. And when Benintendi is really propelling that top of the lineup, that's how you get everybody else going. And we'll see if the youngster there, Benintendi, can Continue to do his work at the top of the lineup, and maybe Hanley uh, Hanley Ramirez, who can really just get going. When he's hot, he is absolutely just magma, volcanic type of temperature can emanate from Ramirez's bat. We'll see if he can really get that thing going. Kind of looks like he did against the Chicago Cubs. So the Red Sox, a clutch team, and that will bring us to the other one I mentioned a moment ago, the other clutch team right now. In the state of New England, that the Boston Celtics. So the Celtics, they go down 2 0 to the Chicago Bulls. Bye bye, Amir Johnson from the starting lineup. Hello, Gerald Green. And what happens? Celtics rip off four in a row. They do not lose a single game on the road in their series against the Chicago Bulls. And in their first game against the Washington Wizards, what happens? Oh, the Celtics decide to try to see whether or not they can win a game without scoring. Not sure that that was going to work out all that well for them. They kind of picked up on, you know, that tactic maybe not being the best thing to employ in the second round of the NBA playoffs. And then they start to really chip away at it. And by the time halftime rolled around, the Celtics were only down by six the third quarter. They dominated. The Wizards didn't commit a single foul foul In the third quarter, but the Celtics were just absolutely dominant against the Wizards. And part of it is because somehow I don't, I, I still don't understand this, but people overlook Isaiah Thomas, and it makes no sense to me. They just don't give him the credit that he deserves. In the regular season against the Washington Wizards, when Isaiah Thomas and John Wall... When toe-to-toe, Isaiah Thomas dominated John Wall. Everybody wants to say just how good John Wall is. Well, you know what? Isaiah Thomas is better, at least when the two teams play against one another. In the regular season, when Isaiah Thomas and John Wall went toe-to-toe, Isaiah Thomas in the four games this year against John Wall, 27.8 points per game Four rebounds, eight assists, shooting 40% from the floor and 27% from three-point land. John Wall, who is supposed to be better than Isaiah Thomas, according to pretty much everybody outside of New England. John Wall in the four games, 17.8 points, 5.3 rebounds, 8.3 assists. So the assists are uh, pretty much a wash. Wall has one more rebound than Isaiah Thomas. And Isaiah Thomas scores 10 more points per game. And, oh, yeah, John Wall, his field goal percentage, 37 from the floor, 15% from three-point land. That's right, 15% for John Wall from beyond the arc in the regular season. So what happens in yesterday's game? Uh, Well, Wall plays 39 minutes. He pours in 20 points on 20 shots, he shoots 45% from the field, just 20% from three point line going one uh from three point land going 1 for 5. So, the easy line that we can get you 20 points with four rebounds and 16 assists, but oh yeah, eight turnovers for wall. He was a minus 5. I'm not a big fan of the minus. But a minus five, Avery Bradley was in his pocket the entire game. He had a couple of big strips in the fourth quarter. So you look at those 16 assists, and then you realize that John Wall also turned the ball over half that amount. Eight turnovers for John Wall. He had two-thirds of the Wizards' turnovers in that game. 12 turnovers total for the Wizards. Eight of them belonging to John Wall, who went just 20% from three-point land, 45% From the floor, a 24-16 and line for John Wall with eight big turnovers. So, what did Isaiah Thomas do on one fewer minute of play? One less minute I play, I should say. 38 minutes for Thomas. 23 shots with 33 points. Field goal percentage just a shade under 48. He went 5 for 11 from beyond the arc, 45.5%. At the line, he was 6-4-7. Wall was just one for two in that game. Just one rebound for Thomas, but yeah, he had nine assists in the game and just two turnovers, and the Celtics as a team turned the ball over just 11 times. And Really, the Celtics, after that first quarter, they dominated the game. They showed no mercy to the Wizards the third quarter. They just dominated, and it was one of the best things I had seen. In a very, very, very long time, that third quarter for the Celtics—they ended it up. Sorry, I'm looking at this backwards, but the Celtics ended the quarter uh, against the Wizards. Just one of the more dominating quarters ever. Ninety-five to fifty, the Celtics were up against the Wizards after they were down five at the start of the half. So you can just see it was 64-59 to 59 in favor of the Wizards. But by the end, it was 95-80 for the Celtics. Celtics came out, and I believe it was the first nine points, maybe seven, no, seven. Uh, they let the Wizards score the first seven points of the fourth quarter before they decided to play a little bit more defense. And everything turned around, and it was wonderful for the Celtics. Al Horford, he had himself a monster game for the Celtics after uh, Marcin Gortat just dominated the Celtics in the first quarter, Horford made the game his own own the rest of the way 21 points on just 13 shots he went 10 for 13 from the floor hit a big three in the fourth quarter but 21 points for Horford 10 assists nine rebounds five of those rebounds were on the offensive end he turned the ball over three times but that's okay when you collect 10 assists he also had a block and committed just three fouls and was oh yeah Second on the team at plus-minus with a 21. And I think the real story of this series is going to be Jay Crowder. He was the team high in plus-minus in yesterday's game with 26, a plus-26 for Crowder. He poured in 24 points on just 14 shots. He went 8 of 14 from the floor, a stupendous 6 of 8 from three-point land. Obviously, that's 75% and hit both of his free throws. He also chipped in six rebounds, two offensive, had one assist, one steal, did not turn the ball over, and he played some great defense. And if Crowder is going to shoot like he did in game one, there's no chance for the Wizards. Because Avery Bradley has found his zone. Isaiah Thomas, after an uncharacteristically bad series, I mean, it was a fairly bad series, and he had a really good excuse for why he wasn't in there mentally, But after a bad series for Thomas against the Bulls, Avery Bradley, who was the best player in that series in game five and six, while in game one of the series against the Wizards, he took 20 shots, had 18 points, shot just 35% from the floor, 33% from three-point land, three for nine, but he put John Wall in his pocket. It was the main reason that Wall had so many turnovers. Bradley stripped him four times in the game. He committed the five fouls, like I said, but Avery Bradley came up, came up with four steals, five rebounds, four assists, and hit three three-pointers, right? What else do you want to do? Bradley was that good, and he bothered John Wall enough, especially after that first quarter when Isaiah Thomas was guarding him. And that was another adjustment made by Brad Stevens that, you know, don't let John Wall... And Isaiah Thomas match up. So what did he do? He went to this, like, funky zone where he kind of kept Isaiah Thomas out on the quarter of the court. And the Wizards had no chance of it. Markeith Morris, he went down. And when Morris went down, so too did most of the Wizards' offense. But there was really no reason for it. The Celtics' offense, they started to run that 1-5 pick-and-roll with Horford and Thomas. And that put Gortat on Thomas. And there was no chance. Just no chance whatsoever. For Gortat to guard Thomas, whereas on the other end, when Stevens went to that funky little kind of like like a a third zone, there was four guys in man-to-man and Thomas in a zone by himself just off to like the top half and outside portion of the court defensively. And it was the same thing that we saw uh, that Stevens used against the Bulls when Thomas kind of just stayed in the corner against Zipser here uh, against the – Wizards, Thomas did more of the same, Stevens did more of the same, and I mean, the Wizards had no chance for it. Thomas ended up guarding Wall in the first quarter, Stevens went away from that, and the offense for the Wizards went away. We'll see if they can adjust, if Scott Brooks can readjust to Stevens' adjustment. Everybody always says the playoffs are about adjusting and I mean, if that's the case, then we'll see what the Wizards come out with in game number two. Morris is expected to play. Thomas, who lost his tooth, is expected to play again. I guess they tried to reinsert the tooth right after the game, or maybe even in the middle of the game, did not succeed. I guess the Celtics didn't have the Bruins guys on hand for their training staff, because, of course, if a guy loses a tooth in hockey, it's no big deal. Basketball, nobody has any idea what to do, but The Celtics training staff couldn't get that tooth back into the mouth of Isaiah Thomas, but the way that the Celtics came out and played after that really, really low and slow first quarter against the Wizards, I have more faith in, honestly, what the Celtics and Brad Stevens can do as compared to what Scott Brooks and the Wizards can do, so Going from one team that I have faith in to another that I absolutely have faith in. That, not the Celtics, but of course, I do have faith in the Celtics, but even more faith in the New England Patriots and just how good their draft was. When you start the draft with, I believe it was just four picks, the fewest in the Bill Belichick era, Mm -hmm. well, how do you come up with something that is good? Out of that draft? Oh, yeah. Well, you remind everybody with your team (laughs) Twitter handle, the New England Patriots putting out the draft by the Patriots. Round one, Brendan Cooks acquired via trade. Round two, Coney Ealy acquired via trade. And already, if you think of it that way, the Patriots off to a very, 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 very good start. Derek Rivers was picked up in round three. Antonio Garcia, the same offensive tackle whereas Rivers was the D end. Dwayne Allen from the Colts via trade in round four. Uh, Dietrich Wise, defensive end, round four. Mike Gillisley, of course, was the uh, restricted free agent from the Buffalo Bills that the Bills put just, obviously, because the Patriots slotted him at round five. The Bills put him on just a fifth-round tender. The Patriots front-loaded the contract for Gillisley, so easy, Um Move there for the Patriots because the Bills couldn't match it. And then James O'Shaughnessy, backup blocking tight end, acquired with a fifth-round pick from the Kansas City Chiefs. And then Connor McDermott, offensive lineman in round six. Now, Jerry Thorne is the go-to guy when it comes to the Patriots. So we go to his breakdown to take a look at everybody. And I think he made the language pretty simple. So you look at the Patriots. We just ran over their list of guys they picked up with their draft picks not guys they actually drafted but using their draft picks and first round a 23 year old deep threat with uh, back-to-back 1100 yard seasons a guy that everybody has said this is about as close to Randy Moss as the Patriots have had since Randy Moss left now okay that's awesome that's the kind of thing that you know kind of makes the jeans a little bit tighter around here But so you get Brandon Cooks, 23-year-old deep threat with back-to-back 1,100-yard seasons. You add to that Julian Edelman, who has been the security blanket outside of Rob Gronkowski for Tom Brady, pretty much the last seven years. You have Danny Amendola, who is the best Super Bowl wide receiver the Patriots have. He always comes up with a touchdown whenever he's been on the roster for the Patriots, and of course he was the guy that they went to for the two-point conversion. The first, I make that excuse me, the second. Uh, of the two two two-point conversions that they had to score in the Super Bowl against the Falcons. So there you have Amendola. Oh, yeah. You have Chris Hogan. So there's a second deep threat. And Malcolm Mitchell, who was a guy that the Patriots put on an island every single day. And he was able to get open every single time that Tom Brady wanted him. So the first-round pick, Brendan Cooks. Second-round pick for the Patriots was Coney Ely, Ely, a defensive end who played more snaps in Super Bowl Fifty than the man he's replacing, Chris Long, did in Super Bowl Fifty One. Okay, so upgrade there. Third round, an athletic, uh, athletic pass rushing stud, according to Thornton, who fits their 6'4", six four four six. In other words, a guy that is six foot four or bigger and runs a sub. 4-6-40 time, and also posted a sub-7-second three-cone time. So, Coney Ely upgrade over Chris Long, and then going to the second pick in the third round for... The Patriots, a swing tackle, Antonio Garcia, who was ranked number five at his position by both Mike Mayock and Mel Kuyper. In the swing tackle, that's what you get when you have Marcus Cannon, a guy that can play right tackle, left tackle, maybe slot in once or twice over at guard. And remember, the Patriots locked up Marcus Cannon before the season. Everybody went, "Mm, you're crazy. And who was the most reliable offensive lineman on the Patriots this past season? Oh yeah, Marcus Cannon. So maybe you should give the uh, the Patriots a little bit more credit that they know what they're doing. Uh, Martellus Bennett's replacement was drafted or was acquired via trade with the Colts for their fourth round pick. Yes, it is a shame that we do not get any of the quotes from Martellus Bennett or his brother, but Dwayne Allen. He was a guy that Andrew Luck loved to look to in the red zone. So, give me another red zone threat. Okay, yeah, I'll take that. Uh, then the next fourth round pick, Dietrich Wise. Wise, a massive, strong, and not all that athletic, but he's an edge setter, a guy that played with his hand in the dirt, as they say in college a lot. Probably is going to be turned into a stand-up outside linebacker for the Patriots. We'll see how that works. I always love those guys that Belichick brings in. And um, Wise is the guy that comes out of Youngstown State where Bo Pelini, a guy who was a part of the Belichick coaching tree, Bo Pelini is over at Youngstown State, won Double A, the uh, playoff division, not the um, bowl subdivision. I hate those differentiate, like those, the way that they differentiate and come up with those names. I, I hate it. Anyways, uh, more into the fifth round. Now, Mike Gillisley restricted free agent who was ranked by DVOA as the best running back in all of football because, oh, he's only averaged 5.7 yards per attempt in each of his last two seasons. The guy that was ranked second, by the way, yeah, that was Rex Burkhead who was signed. So unless you are, uh sorry, that is if you are a running back or if you are a wide receiver for the Patriots right now and you're one of those undrafted guys and the Patriots also got the North uh the uh Big Twelve player of the year out of Northwestern, the wide receiver of the year, I should say. Uh out of Northwestern. That was one of their um undrafted free agent signings, Austin Carr. Like, how are you going to make This team, the answer, special teams. So we'll see just how special Austin Carr is, the wide receiver out of Northwestern. But going back to the second of the fifth round picks, the Patriots pick up a blocking tight end in James O'Shaughnessy via trade with the Kansas City Chiefs. And then their final pick they actually used, Connor McDermott, a tackle project who needs to increase his strength, but has room for muscle because, oh yeah, he is six foot eight. In other words, he is a house. Although, also, in other words, just one inch bigger than the Yankees right fielder Aaron Judge. Which just goes to show you, Aaron Judge is an absolute beast. So, everything going well in the state of New England. That will do it for us here on Pagoon's Barrage. The Celtics, they have won five in a row. But more importantly, are one game up on the Washington Wizards. Who looked very discombobulated in the final three quarters against the Celtics the Boston Red Sox, maybe their hitters have started to turn things around. We'll see if they can, you know, score in more than one or two innings per game. It'd be nice to see them kind of put like a six or seven spot up by scoring in multiple innings. But you never know. Taking two out of three from the Chicago Cubs, we'll take that any day of the week and twice on uh, Sunday. (laughs) Because, of course, the Red Sox, you know, won the game Sunday. Anyways, moving on beyond that, Celtics good. Red Sox, look like they're kind of turning the corner two games above 500 at 13 and 11 and of course the Patriots are doing Patriots things making the rest of the NFL cower even though actually most of the AFCs drafted well but you know who they didn't draft oh yeah Tom Brady back in 2000 and that sucks for them and is awesome for everybody in New England so that would do it for us here from Bagoon's Mirage. as always I hope you are having an enjoyable day and continue to enjoy life Whatever it is you are listening to this one, but that will do it. And this is now love done for Pagoon's Mirage. And as always, you New England. Nothing unstained, where there's a train wreck. Sit on back and watch me crash.